Hello everyone, this is Bill Feltham with the Wall Street Journal coming to you on uh, this Wednesday. And uh, you will get it uh, more than likely on a Saturday, but that's okay. Uh, Starting in the Wall Street Journal, this is uh, an opinion column, Why Does Reopening Polarize Us? The divide over lockdowns reflect deeper differences in attitudes about risk. Liberty and Morality. This is by uh, Dan Crenshaw, a representative out of Texas, written on May 18th. The debate over reopening the economy has a peculiar characteristic. It breaks down almost entirely along political lines. Liberals emphasize the danger of an open society, shaming those who want to go back to work. Conservatives argue the opposite. Red states are steadily reopening, while most blue states lag. House Democrats believe it, is, it isn't safe for lawmakers to go back to work, while the Republican-controlled Senate is back in session. It isn't obvious that such a debate should be partisan, yet it is. Why? One popular ex- explanation is that all roads lead to President Trump. Whatever he says, the left will say the opposite. Geographic distribution has also been proposed as a factor. Liberals tend to pack into crowded cities where the virus spreads more easily, while conservatives populate the more rural, safer safer regions. This explanation is neat, but fails to explain the divide within cities where Republicans support reopening more than their Democratic neighbors. After factoring, another factor is that the economic fallout has harmed working class, high school educated Americans far worse than the liberal leaning college educated. It is easy to prioritize public health when you work comfortably from home. Finally, the far left is treating the lockdowns and the the consequence economic devastation as an opportunity to restructure America into a socialist utopia. So, there is no rush, or they're in no rush. These factors contribute to the partisan divide, but I believe a complete account would take us deeper into a realm of psychology and morality. Liberal and conservative brains function has been shown to differ considerably during exercises in risk-taking. These differences lead researchers to conclude that socially conservative views are driven, at least in part, by people's need to feel safe and secure, while liberals present themselves as more open to experience and change. Conservatives seem more likely to protect that which we know. This divide appears to apply to multiculturalism, traditional institutions, and financial risks, but not all unknown risks. Today's conservatives are the ones ready to confront risks head-on. That's consistent with my experience in the military, where the overwhelming majority of special operators identified as conservative. Recent data confirmed my experience, indicating that high-risk civilian occupations tend to be filled with those who lean right. If conservatives show more brain activity when processing fear, they also seem better at overcoming it. Liberals are more comfortable with a government that regulates more behavior and provides more services. They often say, You can't be free if you don't have services X, Y, and Z. Such statement sounds nonsensical to conservative ears. The conservative emphasis emphasis on personal responsibility leaves less room for government micromanagement we're witnessing now. Conservatives understand basic morality differently too. Research shows that among the five moral foundations, care, fairness, authority, and tradition, in-group loyalty and purity, liberals prioritize care and fairness while conservatives engage all five about equally. 
The liberal weighing means that far more emphasis is placed on a single consideration. If it's if it saves even one life to the exclusion of others, such as the cost to society, liberals equate equate those costs with simple monetary hardship easily replaced by a government check. Conservatives realize economic devastation may affect lives for years, altering their entire trajectory. The liberal approach betrays a lack of imagination. Just because you dislike Mr. Trump doesn't mean he must be wrong here. Just because you can work remotely doesn't mean others can too. Just because you don't want to confront risk doesn't mean others should be prevented from doing so. Just because you have a single-dimensional view of caring doesn't mean we can afford to ignore the consequences of economic devastation. It is time to reopen America in a smart and deliberate fashion and stop calling people murderers because they want to get back to work. The American people are responsible enough to live free and confront risk. Let them do so. Mr. Crenshaw, a Republican, represents Texas 2nd Congressional District. All right, that was one that I have for you today. Let me go to my saved articles. All right, now... The next one is what we know about coronavirus tests, treatments, and vaccine, vaccines. Excuse me. How the U.S. is faring in public health race to safely reopen schools, businesses, and daily life. This is uh, updated May 20th, 2020 by Thomas M. Bert- Burton and the Wall Street Journal staff. The U.S. has performed millions of coronavirus tests, but returning the nation to its normal life will require far more. Some of America's prominent public health doctors say the country must conduct at least 6 million tests a week to capture most cases and prevent the disease from spreading as the public returns to work and schools. That is about three times the amount the U.S. is doing weekly at this point. On top of that, the doctors say the nation needs about 100,000 people to undertake contact tracing, getting in touch with those who have had contact with infected people and may now be infecting themselves. Infected themselves, excuse me. Yet, some states that lack robust testing programs have begun allowing certain businesses to reopen, leading the University of Washington... Institution for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which produces a forecast sometimes cited by the White House to double its previous U.S. death tolls projection. The Institute now says death could approach 135,000 by early August. We are updating this guide recently with what we learn about testing and treatments across the U.S., well, they, they've been wrong the whole time, but either way. Continuing, how much testing would it take for the country to safely lift restrictions? Prominent public health doctors say far more testing is needed and an insufficient supply of swabs, tests, chemicals, and temporary sites to conduct tests are among the seemingly simple elements that have become limited factors. It's insane that we have the country shut down because of swabs, says Aisha Jha, a physician and director of Harvard Global Health Institute. Next, he and other leading medical experts say the U.S. needs levels of testing that are about three times what exists now. Also called for, they said, is a greatly enhanced ability to do contact tracing. For every positive case, Tracing finds about 10 contacts who then are tested. Those who test positive would have their own contacts traced. 
Next, that widespread testing would need to show declining cases for at least 14 days and ideally very low, very, very low numbers to know that it's safe to ease up current social distancing rules, says Dr. Ja and others. Rather than declining, new cases and deaths are increasing across the country, raising further questions about moves to ease restrictions. Dr. Anthony Fossey, director of National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, has cautioned that relaxing social distancing could lead to the resurgence of new infections due to the virus's uh, phenomenal capability of spreading like wildfire. Another benchmark for safety in ending shelter-at-home rules laid out by the World Health Organization, which is also a lying organization, is that the number of positive cases should account for no more than 10% of total tests. Dr. Jaw recommends a target even lower than 10%. In the U.S. at the moment, positive cases account for about 16% of tests. Well, into the future and even after the pandemic subsides, the U.S. should have a long-term ability to perform at least 750,000 tests weekly. Former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Mark McClellan and Scott Goblin wrote with colleagues on April 7th, and each U.S. region, they wrote, should continue to have beefed-up ability to watch for and respond to the outbreaks. So that's that's that article updated. So a lot of that in that article I thought would be better updated than it was. But it wasn't. But that is what it is. And speaking of the WHO, Bloomberg News stealth edit story. Trump threatens to exit the WHO leaves Z to lead a virus fight. That's uh, Xi Jinping from uh, China. You think Bloomberg News would want to lay low after a recent reporting showing it censored a story about Chinese elites and fired the reporter behind it. The news outlet is still shilling for Beijing and its tyrant leader Xi Jinping. Uh, Bloomberg News plastered a Chinese propaganda stealth edited piece on the front page of its website headlined Trump threatens to exit WHO leaving G to lead virus fight. The piece spewed how Trump's America First policy has made G look more like a champion of the international order. The insane quote praising the communist dictator and degrad denigrating Trump's focus on America first has since been suspiciously deleted. Bloomberg News also said in its original lead that this move would leave Chinese leader Xi Jinping as the most prominent voice leading the global fight against the pandemic. The lead has also been changed to reflect a new headline. The piece decried President Donald Trump written letter to World Organization Director General Dr. Tedros Adhamam, I can't say the rest of his name because I don't know how, which planned the organization's alarming lack of independence from the public People's Republic of China. Trump had threatened to cut off funding permanently and reconsider U.S. membership if the organization didn't demonstrate independence from China. The piece proceeded to praise how Xi promised to devote $2 billion towards fighting the pandemic over the next two years while urging greater international cooperation to defeat the virus. If then even, if then even had the audacity to include propaganda from the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lajian, Arbitrary cutting funding to an international organization is a unilateralist behavior, Zhao said. We urge the U.S. to stop passing the buck and deepen international cooperation. 
Bloomberg News didn't mention that it was Zhao who tweeted a piece headline, COVID-19, further evidence that the virus originated in the U.S. at 9.02 p.m. on March 12th. Later that day, he speculated it might be U.S. Army who brought the epidemic to Wuhan. The piece only mentions mention of China lying about the virus was actually phrased as a dig at the president and buried in the 28th paragraph. Bloomberg News stated, Trump consistently praised China's handling of the virus in January and February, even after he was told by the intelligence community on January 28th, Beijing was holding key data about the virus. The piece did not use the same phrasing as the New York Post and the Guardian in its minor critique of China. The New York Post editorial board released an editorial April 26 headline, China is still blatantly lying about its coronavirus deaths. The Guardian published a piece April 23rd headline, China coronavirus cases may have been four times official figures, study says. Bloomberg News also shielded WHO from criticism portraying Trump's criticism of the organization as purely his own. The letter listed several examples of what he said were the WHO's inaccuracy statements about the virus and its praise of the Chinese government's response. The New York Times, which also recently tried to shield the WHO from Trump's criticism, couldn't avoid that that others were also concerned about the organization. Global health officials and political leaders, not just Mr. Trump, have said the organization was too willingly to accept information supplied by China, which still has not provided accurate numbers on how many people were infected and died during the initial outbreak in the country. And that article was from MRC Newsbusters. So there's a lot going on about um, the truth not coming out there. And now uh, more interesting articles. This one uh, I think I read, but it has been updated. Apple, Google start to win over Europe to their virus tracking technology continent that unbraided silicone silicon valley over pi, uh, privacy concerns now warms up to a decentralized approach to contact tracing app yeah the, this was updated may 20th 2020 at 10:32 a.m. the continent that helped lead a backlash against silicon valley's appetite for personal data is increasingly aligning itself with technology built by Apple Incorporated and Alphabet Incorporated, or Google, to blaze a path out of the coronavirus pandemic. Countries across Europe, like others in the developed world, are building their own smartphone apps to help con- uh, conduct contact tracing. The aim, the aim, excuse me, of the app is to help public health officials identify and test everyone who has spent time near an infected person to better understand the can, and contain the, uh, the virus. European countries include Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands have opted for or are considering technical standards for these apps that are developed by Apple and Google in some cases, they have switched to the Silicon Valley model after first trying homegrown options. The embrace of Apple and Google protocols by European countries contrasts with the approach in the U.S., where states and local authorities are taking the lead on digital contact tracing efforts. In the U.S., the database over what type of apps to build has focused in part on whether to collect and compare users' locations using satellite-based tools embedded in most smartphones, something Apple and Google aren't allowing with their exposure notification systems. 
The movement towards Apple and Google in Europe is being driven in part by the same officials who previously have gone after U.S. tech giants over privacy concerns and other issues. European privacy regulators say they have a preference for systems like the ones being developed by Apple and Google because they use a decentralized approach to data gathering, collecting little of it centrally and keeping most of it on the user's phones. Margareta Vestager, the European Commissioner's Competition Czar, has long tangled with Apple and Google on the anti-competition concerns. She is now backing the type of technology the pair is using for contact tracing in part to promote an interoperable framework across the continent. It's important to have a common European approach and right now the tendency is towards a decentralized system. Ms. Vestager told the European Union's Parliament last week adding that she hopes some apps will enable at least some traveling during the summer period. A rival approach for building the contact tracing app involves collecting and storing data at centralized depositories, which governments or healthcare systems can hold onto and use. France, Norway, and the UK have said they want public health authorities to control and learn from the data generated from tracing the contacts of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of infected citizens over the coming months. The UK has, has said epidemiologists need this information to see transmission patterns and guide public policy. French officials say it is safer for the state to control the information of infected people. Both say Animization and other built-in safeguards limit human access to personal data, protecting privacy. What Google and Apple propose uh, tracking technology would work. Uh, One, Karen and David meet in person for a 10-minute conversation. Uh, Step two, David later grows feverish and tests positive with the Wuhan flu. He voluntarily, voluntarily enters the results into an app. A few days later, the phones using Bluetooth technology exchange anonymous identifier beacons, which record that they have been in proximity. David phones uploads the last 14 days of data for for his broadcast beacon to the cloud. Number three, Karen continues her day-to-day life unaware she was uh, near a potentially contagious person. Sometime later, Karen's phone periodically downloads the broadcast beacon keys of everyone who has tested positive for the COVID-19 in her region. Once David's uh, test positive, her phone is notified. Anonymous identifier keys are downloaded periodically. A match is found. Karen receives a notification. Alert. You have recently been exposed to someone who has tested positive for the Wuhan flu. Tap for more information. Karen is not told identity of the positive test. She receives information on what to do next, provided by the public health authority. Now back to the article, Britain's state-run National Health Service is testing its own custom app based on a centralized approach, but it is also working on a backup plan, an Apple-Google standardized model that could replace the first app if it doesn't work as well as expected. People familiar with the, the work says. UK and French officials have been frustrated by limitations to some crucial app functions imposed by Apple and Google, which they worry could hurt the government's ability to collect useful data, according to people familiar with the matter. Of course, they want you to use theirs. (laughs) Apple and Google declined to comment on any specific country's efforts or apps. The companies say they 
develop their system to help public health authorities around the world and have adapted it based on their feedbacks. Privacy is a core of the system because it will help build users' trust and adoption, the company says. The strategy of using phone data to help track potentially infected people has been used with various degrees of success. Since the beginning of the outbreak earlier this year, some countries in Asia have tapped into cellular network data for location information to track who was near infected people. Singapore built a voluntary app, Traced Together, to track contacts, but it wasn't widely adopted and hasn't so far had a significant impact. Like Trace Together, apps popping up across Europe mostly use Bluetooth, a technology commonly used to link wireless speakers and, and keyboards to determine who was close to whom, rather than location-based tools. A group representing EU privacy regulators said tapping into phones' location data for contact tracing would reveal too much sensitive information about users. Phones running Bluetooth contact tracing, like the one designed by Apple and Google, emit a unique ID number that changes frequency, changes frequently, excuse me, they also record the ID number of any phone in proximity for more than, say, five or ten minutes. Most of the apps in use or in development in Europe rely on users' voluntary reporting when they are confirmed to be infected. In the decentralized model employed by Apple and Google, an infected person's phone uploads information about all of the ID numbers it has broadcast over a set time period typically the last 14 days, to a temporary server. Other phones check that server to see if any of the ideas are among, IDs are among those they have recorded. If one matches, then the app notifies the user. In the centralized model, the infected person's phone uploads a list of ID numbers it has encountered in the set type time. A central server then determines any encounters with infected users. It net notifies those exposed, but also retains the data involved. Prompt proponents of the centralized model says it gives a government or health system more information about how the virus travels and who could be affected. Distractors say that gives the government too much information about social interactions of too many people and would be incompatible with decentralized apps. In recent weeks, Germany, Italy, and Ireland have switched to the Apple-Google system or a compatible decentralized model joining Austria and Switzerland. Italy, the first European country badly hit by the virus, planned a homegrown model. It switched to the Apple-Google standard because it's simpler to adopt, said a person familiar with the matter. Belgium and the Netherlands are also moving towards that model. The Netherlands is considering building an app using the Apple-Google framework, a health ministry spokesman said. In Belgium, the government and the majority parties are supporting a bill set to be voted on later this month to require any contact tracing apps to use Bluetooth and be decentralized. So there you go. That's what I have for you this half hour. Until, until I get back to you here in a few minutes, you go get you some coffee and some fruit drinks or whatever you have, and I will be back with you. This is Bill Feltham with the Wall Street Journal and other articles. Thank you, and I'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill Feltham coming to you with part two of the Wall Street Journal, the second half hour. And our first article out of the Wall Street Journal is uh, Spotify Strikes Podcast Deal with Joe Rogan Worth More Than $100 Million. His full library, dating back 11 years, is to hit the service September 1st and become exclusive to Spotify after that, before the end of the year. So if you're a Joe Rogan fan, it's moving to Spotify. This is dated, updated uh, May 19, 2020. 
Joe Rogan is taking his podcast exclusively to Spotify technology in a licensing deal worth more than $100 million, according to a person familiar with the matter. The licensing agreement is one of the largest such deals in the rapidly growing podcast business. The comedian, television host, and mixed martial arts commentator has become one of the most influential and lucrative podcast hosts in recent years, especially with his popular vodcast or video podcast format on YouTube. Mr. Rogan, 52 years old, had so far withheld his podcast for, from Spotify, saying the streaming service doesn't pay enough and he had been generating uh, significant revenue on other services such as Alphabet Incorporated YouTube. His full library, dating back 11 years, is to hit the service September 1st and become exclusive to Spotify after that. Before the end of the year, his video podcast, which will also appear on Spotify, will no longer be available on YouTube. Spotify has spent hundreds of millions of dollars acquiring entire companies, including Gimlet Media and Bill Simmons' The Ringer. The deal with Mr. Rogan is a multi-year licensing agreement for an amount of time that couldn't be learned. It will likely be worth more than $100 million based on the milestones and performance metrics, according to the persons familiar. Last year, the creator of popular true crime podcast, My Favorite Murder, signed a two-year deal worth at least $10 million with E.W. Scripps Company, Stitcher's unit, according to people familiar with the matter, and what was then one of the largest of its kind. Launched in 2009, the Joe Rogan Experience has built an avid fan base discussing wide-ranging topics from neuroscience, sports and health, to comedy and culture. His show constantly ranks at the top of Apple Podcast rankings, sitting at number two on Tuesday. Mr. Rogan's many sponsors include 23andMe, Dollar Shave Club, and Zip Recruiter. We're going to be working with the same crew doing the exact same show, Mr. Rogan said, as he announced the deal on his podcast Tuesday. The only difference will be it will now be available on, a, on the largest audio platform in the world. He also assured fan the podcast will still be available free on both Spotify ad-supported and premium tiers. The deal comes after a year in which Spotify, the largest music streaming service by subscription, has made heavily investments in podcasting as it recasts itself as more than just a music service. The company sees exclusive and original podcasts as a way to differentiate differentiate itself from other music services. It became the single biggest podcasting platform earlier this year, according to media research. U.S. ad revenues from podcasts rose an estimated 42% last year to $678.7 million, according to the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Dow Jones and company producer of the Wall Street Journal has a content partnership with Spotify Gimlet units. And this was written by Ann Steele at the Wall Street Journal. So there you go. Joe Rogan is moving over to Spotify Podcasts for those of you that listen to him. All right, our next article... We're going to go to one of America's remote, remotest states makes remote learning work. The Alaska district where my kids attend school has ensured they don't miss out on an education. This is uh, from May 15th, Kimberly A. Strassel. Very good person to listen to on her uh, articles. Palmer, Alaska. Free market conservatives spend a lot of time analyzing government gone wrong. 
The coronavirus lockdown has reminded me of the importance of pointing out when and why government gets it right. The journal recently reported that many U.S. school districts are ending the year early, giving up on cumbersome remote learning. For two months, we've read stories of disorganized districts that have been slow or unable to set up online classes, unwilling to require schoolwork, riven by fights over how to make the system equitable. Millions of parents and their children have been effectively abandoned by their educators during this shutdown. Not so in my little northern outreach. I cover Washington, but I split my time between the Beltway and a home in Alaska. My husband and kids, a high schooler, a middle schooler, and a third grader are way up north. We've been hunkering down in the Matasco, I don't know how to say this, uh, Sitna Valley, the fastest growing region in Alaska. The experience has given me a new appreciation for the extraordinary importance of responsive, nimble local government that cares about meeting its citizens' expectations. Alaska starts and ends its school year earlier than many states, so coronavirus hits us midway through spring break. On Friday, March 13th, Government Mike Dulavey extended the holiday by two weeks, but school officials understood even then what was coming. All our principals were in the office Monday morning calling staff to find out what they needed to do this longer term, says Matsu School Superintendent Monica Goyet. On Tuesday and Wednesday, our teachers reached out to every family to find out their needs. Laptops, access to internet, food assistance. Did they prefer online teaching or textbooks? By week's end, parents had received instructions on how to pick up textbooks and supplies safely. Elementary and middle school staff members bagged up kids' possessions for collections. Many high schooler principals performed locker runs for families that couldn't retrieve items because of quarantine rules. Schools lent out Chromebooks and worked with telephone providers to get families free or upgraded services. Granted, week one of remote learning was a little chaotic, but mostly because Matsu was so committed to making it work. Emails flooded into parents and students, and many, in, in my case, from 17 teachers, providing instructions and codes for Google Classroom, passwords for online learning programs, times for online meetings, and expectations. The district put a focus on core classes, English, math, science, history, while pairing back elective work my grade school teachers, school, my grade schoolers' teachers understood that young children, mostly without phones, would struggle f- for social interaction and started regular class, class-wide Zoom meetings. As we near the school year end, we are a well-honed machine. Every morning, my kids receive projects, assignment, quizzes, and grades. Teachers were constantly reaching out, taking feedback, and adapting. Parents also did their parts, working to keep their kids on track, even amid challenging work situations. I have 24 kids in my class, and I don't have a single one who isn't participating, says Kathy McCollum, a first-grade teacher at Cottonwood Creek Elementary. These parents are on it. They are doing it. Matsu teachers also inspire kids to embrace the new reality. My high schooler's health teacher focused on stress and individual wellness plans. My middle schooler's physical education teachers sent amusing ways to keep fit in quarantine. The grade school encouraged students to submit videos for an online talent show. It also had a drive-through parade. Teachers and staff lined up 
with proper social distancing around our pickup loop, parents drove their kids through honking and holding signs. There were tears. The sense of community is impressive. What accounts for this success? One big factor is school choice. Matsu is known as the conservative area of Alaska, and about 10% of its families homeschool. Far from fighting this, the district has welcomed diversity, creating a blended system. Homeschoolers can attend school classes and programs like art or sports. Public school students access online platforms. As part of this, the district's five years ago committed to integrating technology into instruction. All this meant that Matsu was better prepared for remote learning. We love choice and we're seeing again, it is what makes us such a robust district, says Miss Goyet. Many high school and middle school teachers were already using tools like Google Classroom and the district had the resources to help quickly where needed. The philosophy that came down was, we're all trying to figure out a new normal and there will be mistakes, but we are here to support you says T. Lynn Middle School's principal, Jason Ross. We had experts in every school reaching out, leading development. The other big factor is the district's impressive employees. Matsu has teachers unions, but they aren't militant. And even amid contractual disputes, these professionals put kids first. Many have worked their entire career in Matsu and are deeply committed to the community. We have a fantastic relationship with our unions and our employees are great, Ms. Goyet said. They understand that these are times when some individuals have it harder than others, but they support each other. Ms. Goyet says the district's approach going into this pandemic was meaningful work and respectful use of taxpayer dollars. Matsu's employees who weren't teaching took on other jobs. Recess monitors and PE teachers help deliver 2,000 meals a day to kids who need food assistance. Bus routes kept running, delivering instructional materials to families that couldn't or didn't want to work online. Staffs are deep cleaning schools, organizing textbooks rooms, engaging in online professional development, and getting ready for that hopeful day when we reopen. It won't be this spring. Governor Delaney announced weeks ago that Alaska would continue remote learning until the end of its regular school year on May 21st. But those of us in Matsu can feel confident our kids, when they go back, will be in good educational shape for that, I think, a school district that got it right. So there you go. That is great to hear. But I'm guessing that the school district isn't that big that they can do that. But it's good that the parents are participating. That's always a plus. If the parents don't participate in the kids' learning, then it won't go too far. And here's another article. It's in the realm of what we heard from, from the... Oh, I I didn't. uh, This is the one I read. Never mind. Dan Crenshaw. Uh, Let me see my other article in the save section. Here it is here. Justice Department tells California its reopening plan could disfavor churches. Warning marks Trump administration's latest effort to support those who say their religious rights have been violated. Critics say such moves are politically driven, but they're not. If you've been paying attention to the news, there's a lot of churches who are being singled out by governors. Justice Department officials warned California Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday that his plan for gradually easing easing the state's coronavirus lockdown could disfavor religious groups. California's March stay-home order and another this month's outlined plans for a staggered reopening 
uh, treat churches and religious service less favorably than secular activities. The head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division and the state's four U.S. attorneys told Mr. Newsom in a letter urging him to adjust the restrictions. The reopening plan, for example, lets restaurants, factories, malls, and other offices operate with social distancing earlier than in-person religious services. Whichever level of restriction you adopt, these civil rights protections mandate equal treatment of persons and activities of a secular and religious nature, they wrote in the letter, which was viewed by the Wall Street Journal. The letter is the latest move in a large effort under Attorney General William Barr to support people and groups who say their religious rights have been violated. Officials in states that have imposed restrictions say they are necessary to slow the spread of disease that as of Tuesday have led to more than 91,000 deaths nationwide. The issue has been a priority for President Trump whose base include the Christian conservative groups for which Mr. Barr has voiced his support. Mr. Trump has also complained about some states and local restrictions, which he has said have hindered the economy's revival. Spokespeople for Mr. Newsom didn't immediately respond to requests for comment. The governor, a Democrat, has said he would be guided by science and data in deciding when to reopen the nation's most populous state, where at least 3,334 people have died from the Wuhan flu. California officials have classified houses of worship, along with nail salons, barbershop gyms, and movie theaters, as higher-risk workplaces that require more space between gatherers. When the pandemic is over... We do not want to look back on this period of time and think that we allowed government to take action to violate our constitutional rights. Eric Dreyerbrand, Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights Division, said, Mr. Barr last month directed him and the top federal prosecutor in Detroit to lead a review of coronavirus restrictions and take action against those they see as going too far. Justice Department officials said they sent the, the letter to Mr. Newsom to spark a dialogue with mayors and governors while signaling that the federal government is closely watching this virus order. Anthony Romano, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union, which has also supported challenges to some coronavirus restrictions, said he welcomes the Justice Department scrutiny but argued it isn't being applied consistently. I want to remember remember a Republican Party that was deferential to states' rights, but that does not appear to be the philosophy guiding the Bar Justice Department, Mr. Romano said. Now you find it increasingly scrutinizing the actions or policies of governors in states that don't politically align with the Trump administration. Mr. Dyerbrand said the department's approach was respectful of local officials' broad authority. Some experts have said some church services raise special concerns about the spread of disease that aren't as acute in, some, in other settings. There tends to be a lot of physical contact, handshaking, hugging, and faith-based traditions, says Chris Breyer, a professor of epidemiology at John Hopkins University. Although you can socially distance, there's also singing the, through which a respiratory virus is known to spread. Most churches around the country have opted for virtual services and programs, though some still want the option for some type of in-person event, including drive-in services. The Justice Department has filed what are known as statements of interest in two lawsuits brought by churchgoers who say they were taking necessary precautions. The statement of interest holds no force of law, but represents a show of support from the Trump administration. In Mississippi, the department sided with churchgoers who sued after being ticketed for attending a drive-in service in a parking lot. In Virginia, the department backed backed with a church suing the state's Democratic governor over his order banning religious service of more than 10 people while allowing similar gatherings at businesses and stores. The lawsuit alleged the church pastor 
was issued a criminal citation because he held a service with 16 people in April. In April, in a filing in response to the Justice Department statement, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam said not, nothing in his executive order prevented Lighthouse Fellowship Church from holding in-person gatherings of 10 people or fewer, allowing the church to proceed with more than that would lead to increased transmission of a deadly disease for which there is currently no cure and could easily transform the very service to which people turned for comfort into the kind of hothouses for the virus that have exasperated outbreak across the country, the filing said. Officials said they were looking for other civil rights cases that extend beyond churches, including those involving the rights to free speech and protest. Conservative interest groups have also tried to put cases on their radar. Mr. Barr's championing of religious rights had made him a long-sought-after ally to many conservatives. Under Mr. Barr, himself a devout Catholic, the Justice Department also intervened in court cases on behalf of those who say their religious rights have been violated and held trainings for its lawyers on religious freedom. In speeches in recent months, he has warned of the growing ascendancy of secularism and said that religion, long an essential pillar of our society, is being driven from the public square. The entire administration, to one degree or another, engages in this, said Tony Perkins, head of the Family Research Council and one of Mr. Trump's most prominent conservative Christian supporters. But the Attorney General is at the tip of the spear. And so if you're paying attention, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of... Um, Christian uh, stuff going on out there. All right. Changing the subject just a little bit. If you're from Michigan, Michigan governor declares a state of emergency as dams fail. Downtown Midland could soon be under nine feet of water in unprecedented flooding, governor warns. Residents were ordered to evacuate from several cities in central Michigan as rising floodwaters overwhelm two dams near Midland, a city of 43,000 on the um, Titabasawasee River, something like that. If you're from there, you know how to say it. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer declared a state of emergency Tuesday evening and called on thousands of people in affected areas to make their way to homes of friends and relatives or emergency shelters in the next 12 to 15 hours downtown Midland could be under nine feet of water. That's because the dam has broken two spots. Other areas uh, and assets affected include the village of Sanford and a Dow chemical plant in the area. Midland County is about two hours northwest of Detroit. Governor Whitmer says the Michigan State Police, the National Guard, and other first responders were on location. This is unlike anything we've seen before, she said, noting that, noting the arrival of record flooding in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. She asked the evacuees, evacuees wear face masks and do their best to social distance, even though it would be difficult in shelters. This is a flash flood emergency for local downstream of the Evanville, uh, Edenville Dam to Sanford Dam. Seek higher ground now, the National Weather Service said in its website. The area has been experiencing heavy rains from a slow-moving storm in recent days. The Weather Service said that waters would continue to rise overnight. And it says, a correction and amplification, rising floodwaters overwhelmed two dams near Midland, a city on the, on the Tibabasiwasi River, an earlier version of this article incorrectly Named the river as Tibawasi. And they left out an S. <laughs> so there you go. If you're from Michigan and you're from that area, just know the dams have let go up there. They couldn't handle all the rain. Now, if you've been uh, paying attention, uh, a uh, tidy takedown of Media Matters and its propaganda about the hydrochloroquine. This is from uh, Cheryl Atkinson. 
She's a very good reporter, uh, if investigative reporter. For most thinking Americans, it is unnecessary to bother to bother to fact check the propaganda group Media Matters. If they have heard of Media Matters at all, they typically understand it's a smear group funded by donors with political and corporate interests whose names are kept secret. The last big Media Matters donor whose name was publicly revealed years ago was that of liberal billionaire and activist George Soros. The problem is too many news organizations and even journalism groups such as uh, Pointer use, use Media Matters and their affiliates as if they are legitimate news sources. They are either unfortunately ignorant of Media Matters slants or choose to keep readers in the dark because they agree with the slant. One major interest Media Matters and its affiliates have served over the years is that of the pharmaceutical industry. They often smear scientists and journalists who report on uh, prescription drugs and vaccine safety issues, falsely labeling them as anti-vaccine. Of course, that's like saying that because I broke news about problems with Firestone tires. I am anti-tire, or because I have exposed, exposed fraud within charities, I am anti-charity. Silly. It is also, for some reason, very important to Media Matters and its affiliates and disciples in the quasi-news media to falsely imply the forensically proven government intrusion into my co- computers while I worked at CBS News was imaginary. They further this false narrative in an article quoting an expert who had never spoken to me, examined the computers, or reviewed the forensics. Among other claims, this expert, wholly unqualified, suggested without evidence that the backspace key on one of my computers was stuck. Therefore, claimed Media Matters, there, was, there were no computer intrusions. I haven't bothered to dissect how ridiculous all of this propaganda was. Besides the fact that the computer Media Matters wrote about is not the main computer in question, that it has no backspace key. CBS News publicly confirmed the intrusion. Multiple independent exams confirmed them forensically and even pinpointed the government source. Insiders have provided detail and even confessed to taking part. The fake media matters news persists in some corner of the internet. This includes Wikipedia, where agenda editors control my biography page, quickly deleting information contrary to the Media Matters narrative. Wikipedia also allows Media Matter propaganda to be cited as a source even though this violates explicit source sourcing policy of Wikipedia. Remember, classic strategy deployed by smear groups like Media Matters isn't so much to address the facts at hand. It is to attack and try to controversialize the scientists, journalists, or other figures presenting facts and viewpoints deemed to be harmful to their donors' interests. This is why they do not simply weigh in or debate information. They encourage it to be censored entirely so you cannot hear it. That brings us to Media Matters' propaganda campaign against hydrochloroquine. Propagandist Bobby Lewis and Alex Walker of Media Matters worked very hard in their blog to present a slanted analyst of my factuals, full-measured report about hydrochloroquine in hopes of getting people not to consider the information in it. Their, their mission is to contrive the public to accept one-sided false narrative that pleases their donors. We can only guess who those funders are since, as I mentioned, their names are kept hidden. Here is a point-by-point dissection of the false media matter information in the blog by Lewis and Walker. 1. Media Matters Headline Downplaying Risk of Death, Sinclair ran a national segment promoting hydrochloroquine as a coronavirus treatment. Fact check. Nothing in the report downplays risk of death. The report did not promote hydrochloroquine or any other treatment. So, the, the article goes on. You can find this article at Sarah Atkinson's uh, webpage. 
It's uh, Cheryl Atkinson, S-H-A-R-Y-L-A-T-T-K-I-S-S-O-N.com. And the, t- uh, the title of it, A Tidy Takedown of Media Matters and Its Propaganda About Hydrochloroquine. So if you have read that article, um, I read an article about the hydrochloroquine, you can go back and read this one. It's a great article. But I'm out of time for this week. So this is Bill Feltham with the Wall Street Journal and other articles. You have a great day. God bless your week and God bless you. In Jesus' name, this is Bill Feltham. Good day.